For our sermon today, our passage is Acts 18, 1 through 17. So I'm going to read quite a bit, 17 verses. I don't have a handout because I thought this sermon would be more effective without a handout. All right, so close your eyes, listen. This is the story of Corinth, how the church got started there. Remember Corinth, you know, sleeping with their father's wives, taking each other to court, dividing over Paul and Apollos, doing terrible things at the Lord's Supper. This is Corinth. Oh yeah, they also had a lot of spiritual gifts and Paul loved them dearly and wrote multiple long letters to them. Here we go. Acts 18, 1 through 17. After this, Paul left Athens and went to Corinth. There he found a Jew named Aquila, a native of Pontus, who had recently come from Italy with his wife Priscilla because Claudius had ordered all Jews to leave Rome. Paul went to see them And because he was of the same trade, he stayed with them and they worked together. By trade, they were tent makers. Every Sabbath, he would argue in the synagogue and try to convince Jews and Greeks. When Silas and Timothy arrived from Macedonia, Paul was occupied with proclaiming the word, testifying to the Jews that the Messiah was Jesus. When they opposed and reviled him in protest, He shook the dust from his clothes and said to them, your blood be on your own heads. I am innocent from now on. I will go to the Gentiles. Then he left the synagogue and went to the house of a man named Titius Justus, a worshiper of God. His house was next door to the synagogue. Crispus, the official of the synagogue, became a believer in the Lord, together with all his household. And many of the Corinthians who heard Paul became believers and were baptized. One night, the Lord said to Paul in a vision, Do not be afraid, but speak and do not be silent. For I am with you, and no one will lay a hand on you to harm you. For there are many in this city who are my people. He stayed there for a year and six months, teaching the word of God among them. But when Gallio was proconsul of Achaia, the Jews made a united attack on Paul and brought him before the tribunal. They said, this man is persuading people to worship God in ways that are contrary to the law. Just as Paul was about to speak, Gallio said to the Jews, if it were a matter of crime or serious villainy, I'd be justified in accepting the complaint of you Jews But since it is a matter of questions about words and names and your own law, see to it yourselves. I do not wish to be a judge of these matters. And he dismissed them from the tribunal. Then all of them seized Sosthenes, the official of the synagogue, and beat him in front of the tribunal. But Gallio paid no attention to any of these things. Let's pray for the sermon today. Almighty God, I ask you to give me your spirit to speak words of truth and goodness for us. And we ask you to give us ears to hear and hearts to receive your word for us. We pray in the name of Jesus. Amen. So remember where we are? We're going through Acts and we're following Paul on his journeys. And we've gotten to some places already that we've heard of because we have letters in our New Testament. Paul's made it to Philippi. He's made it to Thessalonica. 
We got to places we haven't heard of because we don't have letters in our New Testament, like Lystra and Derby and Iconium and Athens. And now we're in Corinth. We have two huge letters in our Bible from Corinth. But all of that sort of juicy, interesting, fascinating, theologically rich stuff, some of which I mentioned a minute ago, you don't get any of that here. Luke doesn't tell us that much about what happened in this place and much about this church. All we learn from Acts 18 is is something like this. Paul goes to Corinth and he starts making tents. Wait, what? That's cool. We haven't learned that yet. Remember, Paul makes tents. And uh, he joins up with the team. He goes to the synagogue in Corinth because, you know, that's what he does. He's a Jew and he wants to tell Jews that the Messiah has come. Messiah doesn't mean king generally. Messiah means anointed one, Christos, the promised son of David. So he goes to the synagogue. It says he debates, he reasons with them, he tries to persuade them. He's opposed and reviled. That's not new. We've seen that a lot. But we do see something that we've only seen once before. Here, he gets so frustrated, he shakes the dust off his clothes and basically washes his hands of him and says, I'm done with you. I'm going to the Gentiles now. Okay. But then, surprisingly, after that, we learn that the synagogue leader converts. How did that happen? We don't know. Many Corinthians convert. Later, after this whole trial thing, a second synagogue leader, he's beaten. Is that because he's a Christian now? Has have two synagogue leaders converted? And how and why? Paul washed his hands of them. We don't know. God gives Paul a vision, promising him protection. And he needs it because did you notice where he ends up? He ends up right next door to the people who hate him. He stays a year and a half. Finally, this opposition to Paul drags him before the Roman ruler who says, I don't care. And they beat this poor synagogue leader. I don't know what happens to Paul. It's a weird story. All right, here's our one question for today. Why does Paul end up next door to the synagogue? That just weirded me out as I read this story. So he's opposed, he's reviled, God's going to protect him. He washes his hands of him, and you would think he, what, moves across town. No. He ends up at Titius Justice's house, which it says is right next door to the synagogue. So why? Now, the short answer to that, I'm going to cut to the chase, is the unsatisfying short answer that I often give to the questions I raise, which is, I don't know. And that's okay. I'm going to offer you three proposals, because I just, I wrestled with this this week. And I think in the wrestling with that question, we learn a good bit about God and about our calling to follow him in thinking through why this might be the case. All right, here's my first proposal. Maybe, maybe, maybe. God is using difficult circumstances to deepen Paul's 
faith. That's possible. Maybe this isn't chance. Maybe God's hand was at work to locate Paul right next door to the intense opposition, because in some way, that daily stress and difficulty and antagonism would form him more deeply. There are, I think, as far as I could come up with, three kind of distinct ways this could work. Kanai told me yesterday, Dad, I think I like your sermons, but you go off on these tangents and then tangents within tangents, and I can never really tell what the point is. My response to that is, can I, I'm just in an excursus within subpoint one of argument one. Keep up, okay? So if proposal one is Paul's going to use, I mean, God's going to use these, these hard circumstances to shape Paul. Here's one way that might work. All right. Book of Judges, all the way back. You remember Gideon? So here's the thing about me and Gideon. I remember all the stories about Gideon, and I can never remember that they're Gideon stories. I, hear, I read the word Gideon, and I'm like, who is Gideon? He's the guy, the protagonist in all these great stories that I remember. So Gideon is the one, remember, who God instructs him to go lead the people, to overcome the oppression of these groups that have been just torturing Israel. The Midianites, the Amechalites, the people from the East, they're just giving Israel horrible problems so they can't even like farm. God calls Gideon. Gideon says, all right, God, I don't know. Could you give me a sign? Maybe like I'm going to put this fleece in the middle of the floor. You remember this one? I love this story. Make the fleece totally wet and the ground totally dry, and then I'll believe that you're calling me. And God does it, and he rings out the fleece the next morning, and it's not enough. And he's like, okay, that's awesome. But maybe could you make the fleece dry and the ground wet? And God does it. That's Gideon. Okay, here's why I'm mentioning this. In Judges 6, 7, and 8, there's this weird story, and I can't help but wonder maybe possibly if it's not what God is doing with Paul in Corinth. So what happens with Gideon, you may remember this, he's got 22,000 troops and they're going to go fight the Midianites. But God says, that's too many troops. So tell them, if you are fearful and trembling, you can go home. And and Gideon does that. And what happens? The 22,000 becomes 10,000. All right. And God says, that's too many troops. Now, here's what's interesting about this. God explains why he's doing this and why it's too many. In Judges 7, 2, he says to Gideon, this is God, the troops with you are too many for me to give the Midianites into their hand. Israel would only take the credit away from me, saying, my own hand has delivered me. So what happens? I love this part. They go down to the river and Gideon says, drink water. And some of them get on their hands and knees and lap like dogs. I already confessed this morning. Quincy's smiling. I already confessed this morning. I'm an idiot. Also, that would have been me. I drink water like that sometimes. Don't judge. I would have been one of the faithful ones fighting the Midianites, all right? They lap like dogs. Yeah, I know. 
And then other ones, more civilized ones, drink with their hands, and God sends the civilized ones home. And there are 300 soldiers, and they defeat thousands of Midianites. But the point is, God wanted Gideon and Israel to get, in this powerful, dramatic way, that he is the one that has the power to do anything, and he is the faithful one. And I just wonder, I don't know, I just wonder, is that what's happening with Paul? If Paul had gone to the other side of the city, maybe at some point he could have easily slipped into saying, yeah, I'm okay, I was pretty smart, I left those guys in the synagogue, it would have ended up bad for me. But God doesn't allow him to do that. He says, no, you stay here. Paul says, I can't stay here. And he says, no, you can't, but I can protect you and will protect you. Like he did with Gideon. Maybe, maybe, maybe he wanted these God wanted these difficult circumstances to show Paul that God can reach people in the synagogue that Paul couldn't. I mean, it's just so interesting. He washes his hands. He says, no, I'm innocent. Your blood be on your heads. And then what happens? Next thing we know, next verse, synagogue leader is coming to love and worship Jesus. What? Maybe God wanted to make that stark contrast perfectly plain. Here's the third possibility within sub-possibility one, right? Okay, difficult circumstances. Here's how that might work. Maybe, maybe God wanted to teach Paul something that we don't even know through the difficult circumstances. Here's why I say that. As you know, I've had some health issues lately, so I wasn't able to talk for months and months and months because I had this growth on my vocal cords, and I got it surgically removed, and now I can talk. I feel like Paul in some ways. God says, do not be silent. I will not. All right. But here's the thing about that. I was talking to one of my friends this week who I hadn't talked to in a while, and um, he hadn't really gone through that whole process with me. He kind of knew that there was something wrong with my voice. And then he found out the whole story and was like, oh my goodness, that's incredible. What was that like? And we were talking about it. And I said, I've learned some things. Now, I learned them in painful, painful ways, but I don't know that I could have learned them without the pain. And he said, what'd you learn? I said, well, I learn in a firsthand experiential way, not an intellectual way. Just getting a tiny glimpse of what some folks who are disabled must feel like in society. When I went into a store and I had to use an app on my phone to talk, people assumed that I couldn't read, that I couldn't think, that I was some poor man that had no friends or, or something, the ways that they would look at me were startling and unjustified and irrational. And I got the tiniest glimpse of what so many people must go through on a daily basis. And Jesus expanded my heart just the tiniest bit for the way he loves those who are marginalized. I said I learned that through the pain of not having my voice. I said, here's another thing I learned. I've probably shared that part with you. I don't think I've shared this one. 
So there were times when I'd go into a store and I wanted to order food. And I didn't want to type in the app again. I was getting tired of typing in the app. And Kanai was with me, and he would know my burrito order because we get burritos approximately 1.5 times a day. So Kanai knows my burrito order, so we'd go in, and Kanai would order for me. Fascinating thing I learned. You know who looks at you really, really, really weird when your child orders for you? White people. You know who doesn't look at you weird? Latino people. Why? Because a lot of people have had the experience of being in a situation where they're not able to speak the language of the majority culture, and they go into a place and they're mute effectively, and people look at them strange, and people look at them like they're uneducated, and they may be a doctor for all they know. And their children have to order for them. And the compassion that I received just washed over me, and I was like, oh my goodness, I never really appreciated that fact of our collective life. So maybe, maybe, God puts Paul right next door to that synagogue because he's got to teach him something about the heart of Jesus that Paul can't learn any other way. Now, I don't like saying this. It makes me uncomfortable, this idea that what? God, you know, you read in the Bible, God disciplines us. God even allows hard circumstances to happen. Dare I say, God might even initiate some hard circumstances. I do not like thinking that way. It makes me deeply uncomfortable. But I can't help but worry if that's not kind of sort of partly at least my cultural blind spot. You see, if we let him, God wants to do whatever he has to do, however he has to do it to make us into the people he wants us to be. And we have a very, very shallow understanding of love if we think that it means being bubble-wrapped at all times. God does not bubble-wrap us. And we learn that from Paul being next door to the synagogue. All right, here's the second possibility. Can I, you tracking point number two? Maybe, just maybe, God puts Paul next door to the synagogue because he wants Paul to learn that maybe his witness needs to be entirely by actions and not by words. I said something last week in the sermon about evangelism. No one gave me feedback. I thought it would scandalize some of you. It probably did, and you just bit your tongue and grumbled. I don't know, but I want to clarify something I said. I said, I'm deeply ambivalent about evangelism. Now, I want you to understand the word ambivalent. This bothers me deeply because it's probably the most misunderstood word in the English language. Ambivalent does not mean nonchalant, neutral, I don't care. In fact, it means the opposite of that. It means I am strongly pulled in one direction at the same time that I am strongly pulled in another. That's ambivalent. Here's why I'm ambivalent about evangelism, as I've learned it and experienced it. I said last week, I worry and I feel like there's something wrong 
with approaching and meeting someone for the first time, a stranger, and, and somehow you know or think or suspect that maybe they don't follow Jesus with their life, and all of a sudden, they become a potential convert, a number, a project, and they're reduced to that. That way of walking through the world doesn't seem to me to be the way that Jesus walked through the world. That's my worry about the ways I've learned evangelism. But that is not to say that I do not think in a profound way that every person ever wasn't made to know and love Jesus and experience fellowship with him and learn that they're made in his image and that they're made through him and to enjoy calling on his name as the only name by which they are saved. I do believe that. Here's what we see about evangelism in this chapter. I mentioned before, I think it's telling that Luke tells us this first synagogue leader, Crispus, he comes to trust and love and follow Jesus. We don't know when, but narratively, it's after Paul leaves the synagogue. So what? How? Did Crispus see the way that Paul lived, the way that some of the Corinthians lived with Paul right next door through the fence? Maybe. I have a friend from college, and he's a pastor as well. I, I listened to a sermon of his for the first time this week, uh, a, a recording, and it was wonderful. It was so cool to see my friend. I didn't know he could preach. He's amazing. He's great. And he told a story, and I'm going to reshare it now, uh, that, that fits exactly what I'm trying to say. He talked about how for years he was a missionary in Central Asia. And there was one time early on, many years ago, when a team of students came over and they were doing mission work in Central Asia, and they went out to play a game of American football. So they start playing, and pretty soon some dispute breaks out among the team members. Well, there's this guy on the side, this Central Asian guy watching them. He's He's trying to find the right moment that he wants to rob them, to, to take their stuff off the sidelines. So he's watching the game intensely and closely, and he sees the, the, the fight break out. And he sees across the field, he can't hear, he can only see gestures and postures. He, he doesn't even know English very well, so he wouldn't understand anyway, even if he could have heard. But all he sees is this young woman and this young man that are on this missionary team, and the young woman, her posture is all angry and tense, and she's really upset at something the man has done. And he sees that. And he thinks in his mind, now he's going to let her have it. Because in his culture, that is the norm. That maybe she will now receive the back of his hand, like his mom would, if she had that posture towards his dad. Instead, what he sees from the man's posture is a sort of melting and a sort of, what, something like an acknowledgement of wrongdoing, and then the woman's posture in response melts as well. And they hug. 
And there's some sort of reconciliation or something, and the man that's watching to rob them is scandalized. He says, how could you be publicly humiliated by a woman in public like that? But he can't stop thinking about what he saw. And as the week goes on, that thought morphs into, what if my my dad were to seek forgiveness in some way from my mom? What if I were to seek forgiveness from my mom? What does that even mean? What does it mean to live a life where those postures are possible? He can't even fathom that. So he goes and he seeks out that team that he knows living somewhere in town. And he asks them, how do you ask for forgiveness? My friend says this. I I, I sat there and I typed it up listening because I wanted to quote him. He's been a missionary in Central Asia for many years. He said, here's what he he learned from that story. That story is the, the norm that he saw in his time in mission work. The norm. He said, here's the norm. It's not one individual sharing the gospel with another, but it's someone saying, I saw lived out in a community the love that my heart had always longed for. And I moved into that community, and I was brought into them, and I found out the source is Jesus. He said, that's the norm. When people come to love Jesus. That's how it happens. Paul was placed next door to the synagogue, possibly, maybe, so that that could happen. Last possibility. Maybe, maybe, this is our lot as Christians. Maybe, maybe, especially in our context, especially right now, we need to hear this. We aren't supposed to to retreat to our safe, monastic type enclaves. Maybe we're supposed to live always in a situation of danger and risk right next to people that might sometimes hate us and be utterly unpersuaded by any of our words. Maybe that's exactly what our calling is too. I don't know. I mean, there have been Christians throughout the centuries that have determined at different points that God was calling them to withdraw entirely for different reasons, because the society was so corrupt and corrupting that they thought the faith won't live on unless we just go live by ourselves and pass it on to our kids. This I've read was at the heart of a lot of monastic movements. This I've read is at the heart of a lot of Anabaptist movements, Amish, Mennonites. Now, I want to be clear. I'm not judging that. I have no capacity to judge that. I have no standing to judge that. I have no word from God that says, no, I didn't speak to them. I'm not saying that. I'm not standing in judgment on that as a theoretical possibility. All I'm suggesting is this. 
I can't help but strongly wonder if that is not what we're, we're not supposed to do that right now. Christians have always struggled with what it means to be in the world, but not of the world. We've, always, we've never known what to do with that, and we've interpreted it in different ways. But I'm going to share two verses that speak to me profoundly at this moment. John 17, 15 says, Jesus is talking. He says, I'm not asking you, God, to take them out of the world, but I ask you to protect them from the evil one. It's Paul next door to the synagogue. Paul wrote to Corinth the following. I wrote to you in my letter not to associate with sexually immoral persons, not at all meaning the immoral of this world or the greedy or the robbers or idolaters, since then you would need to go out of the world. Paul and Jesus are both saying you cannot withdraw and retreat and be out of the world, whatever that means. Dietrich Bonhoeffer put it this way. He said, Christians belong not in the seclusion of a cloistered life, but in the midst of enemies. There they find their mission and their work. You heard about this book, The Benedict Option? Shaking heads. All right, it's fine. It, was, it got all this press like a few years back. And by all this press, I mean among like nerdy Christian theologian types. So yeah, like probably 100 people have heard of it. But yeah, it was a big thing. It was a big thing a few years back. Benedict Option, written by this guy named Rod Dreher. And I had heard about it. This is a lesson for all of us. I had heard about it in its thesis from many people. And then I read it this week. And the way it was characterized to me by every person who had read it was wrong. Maybe they had just heard it characterized from someone else too. Always go to the source. I'd heard Benedict Option described like this. It's a guy who's saying something like, culture wars are lost. Culture is totally hostile to Christianity. Christianity is compromising itself. It's dying. Woe is us. The world is falling down around our heads. And the only hope for us is to build an ark, to form monastic communities and retreat from the world entirely. That's how I'd heard Benedict Option thesis described, and that is not what it argues. In fact, I would highly commend this book. There are reasons to think, if you don't read slowly and carefully, that he's arguing something like that. He does use the image of Noah's Ark. But if you read really carefully, that's not, I don't think, what he's saying at all. He says, look... All I'm saying is this, if we're not going to be washed away by what he calls secular nihilism, we've got to be the church again. We've got to recover communal, disciplined, countercultural Christianity. We've got to do things like relearn the spiritual disciplines and commit to staying in one place unless we're called elsewhere. And we've got to send our children to schools in some capacity where they learn the Christian tradition. And we've got to unplug from mainstream culture. And we've got to recover liturgical worship and teach Christians the history of their tradition. And we've got to stop thinking that national politics is the solution for everything because it's not the solution to much. And we've got to get involved in local politics and we've got to build local communities and schools. And we have to embrace what he calls exile in place. 
That's Paul in Corinth. Paul's next door to people that hate him. He's living differently than them, and he's living in such a way that those who hate him are drawn to Jesus. I found it intriguing that in the midst of this book by Ron, Rod Dreher, he says this, our best evangelistic tools are beauty and goodness. He writes this, the first Christians gained converts not because their arguments were better than those of the pagans, but because people saw in them and their communities something good and beautiful and they wanted it. This led them to the truth. And finally, he writes, I have been surprised by how few people I have met over the years who were brought to conversion by apologetics alone whether spoken or through books. It happens, obviously, but it rarely happens on its own. So I've given us three possibilities, and we're going to end with a question. Remember, I'm trying to bring back questions, and we'll find a way, we'll find a forum to reflect on these more deliberately together. I'm not sure what that is yet, but I leave you with this. And it's not a throwaway question. It's the question for you to really dig into this week. Because me digging into this question was really, really good for my heart and soul. It led to this sermon today, and it challenged me in a lot of ways. So here's your question. It's actually three questions. Why does Paul settle down next to the synagogue? That's question one. In the possibilities that I've offered today, in the possibilities that I've offered today, has God said anything to you about your life? And finally, what does it look like for you to live like Paul lived in Corinth? Amen.